everyone. Welcome back. Another episode of Petty Politics. It's your boy Cam. And it's your girl Bree. <laughs> Welcome back. I missed you. No, I really missed you. Yeah. Did you are you talking to them or to me? I both both of you. <laughs> I missed no, all of you. I missed you guys, but I mean I missed you too, Cam. I mean, I feel like y'all <laughs> haven't probably missed us because we've been Putting out stuff pretty consistently. Yeah, we have our law school admission series. If you haven't heard it, go check it out and refer it to a friend who wants to go to law school. Right. Like, we, we kind of wanted that to be the start of our second season or really our second semester mm-hmm. uh, because we wanted to make sure that we could provide as much value to y'all, especially if you're interested in joining law school. And we're not done with it, so don't worry about that. Exactly. And so what do we have today, Cam? So, today in Life in the Law, we're going to be talking about what we did over winter break, or J-term as we call it. Also going to talk about our grades. Mm. Only a little bit, because I don't... (laughs) Even when I have good grades, I'm still insecure about talking about them. I don't know No, (laughs) we both got good grades, and we're going to talk about them, actually. Sure, I guess we'll talk about our grades in in detail. (laughs) No, I'm not in detail. You don't have to tell the grades, but I mean... my transcript to everybody. Literally, literally, firm wide. Okay, and what are we getting into for the political? For the political, there's been too much happening. Like, yeah, actually, been, way it, too much. I've given up on us trying to do a recap of everything that's happened, but we're going to just try to jump off with the most recent news. So we're going to talk about the government shutdown that just recently happened. It was out of business for a minute and then came back. Also going to talk about DACA reform and some of the new bills that have been put in motion, especially after the government shutdown. Then we're going to talk about Larry Nassar, if you haven't heard of him already, 175 years in, in, in prison. I think that when the judge signed his prison papers, she was like, I hope you know that this is the end. But it was she said like, something along the lines of that. It was deep. It, yeah, it, it was, was hurtful. Really, it, it was. We'll get into that in a second. What are we getting into for the petty, Brie? Okay, everyone knows that I love the petty. I mean, I love the political, but I mean, I just really love the I petty. I miss the petty, too, you know? <laughs> We're going to talk about Amara La Negra, uh, her Breakfast Club interview with Charlemagne the God and DJ Envy and Angela, but primarily the problematic conversation that she had with Charlemagne and DJ Envy, which is really interesting. About colorism. Yeah, about... colorism, um, being Afro-Latina in the industry. Also, Hennessy Carolina, is that her name? <laughs> is that even her name? Like, we don't even know her name. Cardi B's sister, better known as... Uh, she actually had a little clap back to Amara La Negra, so we can talk about that very briefly because it's very irrelevant. We're also talking about Oprah for 2020. Should Oprah be our president in 2020? I know everyone's been campaigning about this since her speech, and it was a great speech, but let's actually talk about the logistics of that. Like, is that actually a thing that uh, we yeah, want should, in our lives? Yeah, exactly. Do we, we truly really want, Oprah? want someone like Oprah to run for president? And that's not saying disparagingly either. I mean... Yeah, I mean, we're going to critique. You know we get into it for the petty. Okay, we're going to critique it. Gail for vice president. (laughs) All right, let's get started. All righty, let's get into life in the law. First and foremost, we wanted to just catch up with y'all about some of the things we've been doing over the past month or so since winter term started. First, actually, Kim, what is winter term? Sure. Just tell them that. So... Law schools are weird, and Harvard Law School is in <laughs> Even particular. weirder. Right, right. Like, in particular, we have some weird elements to our school schedule. And I think, actually, some other schools do this. I'm not sure how many. But we have a winter term that starts right after fall semester ends and right after Christmas. So January 2nd, we come right back. Literally, the day after New Year's. People are flying in. <laughs> and they're getting ready to hunker down for some classes in 20-degree weather exactly. in Boston. Exactly. And really... 
those flights are so expensive. Like it's too expensive to fly on New Year's, and then the day after, it's just it's really ridiculous. And I literally had class that morning. Hence why I don't come back. So <laughs> we have options. So you can take a course here at the law school, or you can do an independent research paper, something that I did last year. And also you can do an independent clinical project, which basically means you get to work for an organization, do some work for them, albeit only for three weeks before you come back for spring semester. But you're working for three weeks at a nine to five. Like it's, yeah. it's very difficult. I would rather just go sit through a class every day for three weeks. And that's what I did. I sat through a class, which was very interesting. What was it? It was lawyering for social justice in the United States in 2018. Mm. It's a very long title. Mm, deep. And yeah, <laughs> right. And the class just taught us about the current structure of the United States and different framework for modes of advocacy and really highlighted ways that we can use our law degree in order to promote social justice. It sounds dope. Was there like a paper involved or presentation? No. I mean, the last two days were turned into a type of clinic. There was no paper, but class did run every single day for three hours a day. So that was, <laughs> <You> <laughs> that was, and I was like one lecture. I know I, I might consider the clinical work. I mean, I'm done now, but, you know, we're both three L's, but. Yeah, I now am thinking it might have been better because the break was so small and the break came after, after, Hmm. after. I have to emphasize that, the two-hour lecture. Oh, yikes. Yeah. So it was was like split in two ways, like two-hour lecture and then one hour. Yeah, of some like type of responses and such. And the last two days, actually, we had to come to class from nine to four to do a justice lab. So So you were working anyway. I mean. I was working. You know what? I was working. (laughs) I I was working. I was on the clock and and we don't get paid. (laughs) I feel like mine was more chill despite the fact that I was working a nine to five. So I went back home to Houston. Shout out Houston. SWAT. Uh, (laughs) And I went to go work at the ACLU of Texas, actually. I've always wanted to get some work done uh, at the ACLU in my hometown. And so it was nice to have that opportunity. And I got to do a little bit of voting rights work, um, wrote a memo, did some research to help them with some projects that they're working on. And even though it was only three weeks long, it actually felt pretty substantial. It really? Was, yeah, it felt pretty nice. I actually really enjoyed the people there. The folks were really uh, supportive and helpful. But, uh, you know, working nine to five was a it was a struggle. (laughs) Did you work on one project or were you able to work on a couple of different things? So because it was only three weeks long, they didn't want to overwhelm me. So they Mm -hmm. gave me one topic, but Mm -hmm. there were multiple assignments within that project, including one memo. Oh, Uh, The rest of them were kind of more loosely for more uh, informal stuff that they just wanted information on. Oh, nice. So it was nice to get one writing sample out there. That's really the reason I did it. Oh, okay. So you got a good writing sample out. How do you feel about that? It felt felt really nice, uh, actually. I really wanted to get more experience with doing legal writing and feeling more confident about it. And, uh, you know, although it did take me a lot of time to get it Mm -hmm. right and to feel confident about what I was writing about, um, you know, that's the main reason I'm doing it. I'm yeah. actually going to do that in the spring, too, to hopefully get oh, more nice. experience. I'm happy that you got experience with the legal writing. That's something that I really enjoy doing. I like writing in general, but legal writing is very different, and that's mm. something that they don't tell you before you come to law school. And so Cam has been doing a lot of practicing with his legal writing because he is a great writer, honestly, one oh, of the best you. I've seen. No, you, you are. <laughs> but legal writing is something totally different, and so he's been at the library buying books on legal writing and just getting a bit of experience. I'm proud of you. Right, right. I'm trying to get like you with these double H's <laughs> and stuff that you're popping off with. Don't be telling my grades! Talk about grades, huh? Yeah, let's talk about grades. <laughs> <laughs> this is how Bree has been acting for the no, past No, minutes. listen, I caused a scene up in the studio. 
I caused a scene. How could I not? How could I not? Okay, I did get several H's, a few H's, okay, a couple of H's mm. on my transcript this semester, but that's not what I'm excited about. Wait, let's clap for that. Cam got H's to know. But that I'm excited. I'm one of those rare students who celebrates her peas. And I don't know why the art of celebrating your peas has gotten lost. And so contrary to popular belief, I'm not celebrating those H's. Great. Those are great. I mean, I, I put a lot of work into those classes, so... I probably was going to get an H, but the P that I got in the federal courts in the federal system from Mrs. What's her name? Martha Field. <laughs> it really reflected Thank just you a for new. <laughs> Thank you, because you could have given me a low grade. You could have. You probably you didn't know about my class attendance because it was graded not <laughs> graded anonymously. <laughs> I mean, I'm not even gonna get dig myself further into that hole, but just know I'm celebrating the P that I got in fed courts. And that's what I'm happy about. I think about we've today. talked about grades before, but I guess just in case some of y'all don't know, because we, we sometimes <laughs> talk about these grades like everyone knows. So we don't have A's and B's and C's in, in law school, or at least not here at HLS. We have low pass, pass, high pass, and then Dean Scholar Award. Mm-hmm. And basically it runs along a curve. I have a weird designation on my transcript. I think I had mentioned in a previous episode that I was doing a course at the Graduate School of Education. Oh, yeah. And so I know I did well because my presentation went went fine. But on the transcript, it says, what, SAT? SAT. And I was like, all right, like standardized testing? Sure. Yeah, I don't know. It, it looks weird. <laughs> I, I took a course, Advanced Legal Research and Writing. Yeah. Again, back to my love for writing. I'm, I'm a litigator. That's what I do. <laughs> a I am a litigator. Well, I will be in three months. <laughs> <laughs> Call me the Esquire. But no. I took advanced LRW and instead of a grade, it's a credit. So it looks kind of weird on my transcript. That's annoying. Yeah, it's CR. Like, so I you don't just even throw, know like, how the... good you got at legal writing. That's really uh, annoying. I, I think I got really, I did really well. Yeah. I think so because, I mean, he did meet with us at the end to tell us about our improvements and such. And he did tell me that my last project was my best. And you yeah. know, it was the last one. So I assume like I have aggregated all of the things that I've learned and put it into the last project. Right. It's like not, not to say that the grading curve is a good one, but I'd at least like to know where I land on that curve. Yeah, exactly. It is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. We got our H's, but most importantly, we're here to tell you to celebrate those P's because Mm. Ms. Martha Phil could have given me that LP and she, by the grace of God, me speaking into existence every single morning. Mm, Okay. I got a P. I got a P in Fed Courts and actually you can't tell me anything because I'm done with school. I don't think y'all understand. <laughs> Kim's like, no, no. Uh. This is our last semester. I don't think you get it. Yeah, no, because I'm taking all reading groups and seminars, literally no exams, no black letter law, no, li- this is all like philosophy and stuff. And this yeah. is stuff that I'm naturally inclined to. I'm not naturally inclined to the other things. What are you like taking? Pet courts. I'm taking gender violence and the law. Mm. I'm taking a reading group on settlement in the courts, which is really going to help me with my civil rights litigation. You know, people love to settle these days. Hello? I'm, <laughs> I'm taking legal profession and I'm taking fair trial with Nesson. Don't talk about him. I know that you were going to make a comment. Sounds like a fun class. Yeah. So we're actually in legal profession together this semester, which is great. It's one that's required of us. So yeah, I'm doing legal profession. (laughs) I'm going to be taking disability rights litigation, which is an interesting course. I'm also going to be taking immigration law which is something I've always been wanting to take. So that's I'm excited. Good. Yeah, that's, I think that's it's going to be good. a cool semester. I'm also going to be gonna working be awesome. at, a, at a clinic too. So That's a lot though. You don't want to like kind of alleviate your load because it's your last well, semester. Well, I have to get 10 hours 
10 credit hours, so I had to find the best way to do that, and that was the way that it worked. Okay, okay, that's good. Okay, well. Well, shout out to everyone who is in the class of 2018, if you're here at Harvard Law School or at another law school, or even if you're in undergrad, you know, yeah, like, 20, high class, school. Ca- shout yeah. out to class of 2018, <laughs> you know, we're excited, everyone's graduating. Are you decorating your hat, your cap? I'm, I don't even think we can like that because we rent really? our regalia, and it's like wow. it's not like a like the mortar board. Always it's like holding a, us back. It's not a mortar board. It's like a flu- like a fluffy. Oh my god! Yeah, it won't work. I don't think you can really decorate it like wow. that. Wow. Okay. Well. All right. So <laughs> on to the political. <laughs> shout out to y'all. Shout, shout out, out to, to 2018. Y'all. Exactly. Shout out to us. Celebrate yourself and celebrate your peas. Celebrate the peas. Yeah. Celebrate the peas. <laughs> Okay, so firstly, in the political, we're going to get into this government shutdown. Mm. So on Friday, January the 19th, the government shut down. And this, mind you, is the first day of Trump's second year in office. I can't. It starts with a shutdown. (laughs) (laughs) If that is at all prescient of what's going to happen in the future, I feel like that's a bit of a foreshadow. Indicative. (laughs) Is it all indicative of the long run? Yeah, literally. I need to know now. This is the earliest government shutdown in a president's term. But thankfully, thankfully, we have our government back. Okay. I mean, we we might need it. Do we? Do we have our (laughs) I mean, it reopened. uh, Well, we, we, and you know what? Questions that need answers. There is a government that's operating on the Hill right now, and it has reopened on January the 23rd. Cam, tell us, what is everyone fighting over? So. so. Well, not everyone, because I'm not fighting over. I'm not fighting anymore. Right. (laughs) <laughs> what are they fighting over? So this three-day shutdown was all, if you ask me, political, you know, brinksmanship and kind of stunting for the news. But the main issues that were being discussed, we needed a continuing resolution to fund the government or else people were going to be put on furlough, which basically means you're not going to get paid if you're a federal employee. The issue was over DACA, deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Now, this has been a program that's been controversial and in the news, in and out for years now, since it was established under the Obama administration. The DACA issue has to do with looking for a way to be humane, to be actual human beings when it comes to folks who were brought here, who are undocumented, and who need assistance to stay in the country and to have a way of life. Now, Trump has already made it very clear that those are not things he particularly cares about. He's already removed TPS for people in El Salvador and for people in Haiti. He ended up making this comment, calling countries that are in Africa and countries in the Caribbean. Shitholes. Hello. Good morning. So, li- <laughs> so living our truth. Living, uh, <laughs> living Trump's truth. So, no, it's his lie. It's a lie. But I'm living my truth and exposing living his the deceit. lie. Yeah, deceit. So, deceit. So the issue was whether or not the Republicans were going to allow a DACA measure to be added to the continuing resolution that would at least extend their ability to stay in the country, because currently it's set to expire in March, knowing already that people are losing their paperwork, are already losing their lawful status here, and are subject to deportation at all times. The issue was that Republicans said, well, we're adding CHIP to the continuing resolution. We're going to extend funding for child health care insurance program for... For six years. But the issue with that is they kind of just threw chip on the table and this vote was very lopsided, right? Right, exactly. Like the whole issue was that 
they had one bargaining chip, which was literally chip. Chip was and their And then they were chip. mad because DACA, which was the issue that had been discussed by Trump and Republicans and Democrats for the past couple of weeks, was not being added. So it was just a whole bunch of drama about that. I think that one thing that we all can agree on when it comes down to the drama, especially that started the government shutdown, is that it's because of Trump. His lack of negotiation skills is very prevalent right now in the government, and it's causing havoc. Him just sending things to Congress, and especially as such a divided and partisan Congress that we have right now, and saying, okay, you guys need to find solutions for this. This is what I'm telling the public, particularly Twitter, that he's coming up with all of this great bipartisan legislation, and he's throwing it to Congress and having them fight like dogs and then shut down the government is not helpful. Oftentimes, the reason why these issues started in the first place, such that in its current iteration, while the government is now back in operation and there's some kind of ethereal promise from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell that a DACA bill is going to be considered before February 8th. The issue is that now Trump isn't even in the picture. Like, they've removed exactly. him. Exactly. They're totally removed from him. And he's right. one of the ones who stood up and said Trump cannot negotiate. Because earlier him. on in the process before the shutdown, Trump had this big media spectacle where he brought in cameras into a bipartisan meeting on immigration reform. He said, I want a bill of love and I want a bill that deals not only with the dreamers, folks who are here under DACA, but also deals with, quote unquote, border security, which no one actually exactly. knows what he means. And, and so now we kind of see what happens when Trump's comments inadvertently affect the democratic process in ways that are undesirable. And so, for example, his current rhetoric on immigration in general, I think it's wreaking havoc in Congress. And that's part of the reason it shut down. Do you think that what he says on Twitter and whatnot has anything to do with what's going on in legislation? I've stopped following anything. He I, says on I don't. Fo- of course, I don't follow I don't him. Have energy. It's there. It's, <laughs> it's in the energy. news. <laughs> I mean, I think the way that it's been, the only thing it's been doing is destabilizing, as you said before, is tr- basically making folks think that his beliefs are going to be shifting and not solid when it comes to these important, life-changing policy issue. That's exactly. Partially... Destabilizing right. in, at this point on a global stage because we're having foreign actors step in or step out for that matter. And that's something that Mitch McConnell talked about, too, when it came to t- discussing these issues, is that Trump's tweets establish one viewpoint that the Republican House and Senate are actively trying to push back against because the Senate has to negotiate. There just aren't enough numbers for them to be hardliners on these issues, whereas the House is actually a lot more free to be more conservative. In fact, after we had this deal done for the government to reopen, Senate Majority Leader McConnell says, yes, we'll consider a DACA bill. The House Republicans are actually saying, no, we don't actually expect that we're going to vote for any type of DACA measure because we don't think that's going to suit our constituency. Yeah, I mean, but and then here goes Trump on Twitter coming right after these two. So we have the Senate majority leader saying one thing and the House Republicans saying another. And then Trump saying, oh, big win today. Democrats like like exactly because no one really won. The Democrats did step away with chip. And I think that that's a very big advantage to have an extension Mm. on this children's health program that goes more into the welfare state Mm. and just child care legislation in general and how they're constitutionally protected and given these amenities within the state. So that's very important. CHIP was very important to me. And the fact that it's being extended for six years is extremely vital. That is so true. And that's basically what Republicans are using as their justification for not providing DACA relief. They're saying, well, we gave you something. You're now asking for too much. But I also feel like it's 
really fake and kind of performative politics that we're playing here because the Republicans created both of these situations, mm-hmm. right? Trump was the one that said, I'm going to, uh, to, to mess around with DACA legislation and make it expire in, in March. He also was the one that wasn't pushing for CHIP to be reinstated when it initially expired. Exactly. So if Trump hadn't done those things, we wouldn't have to be talking exactly. about bargaining chips at all. So Exactly, because now they're able to bargain with our chips. And so when I think about this, I think about the last government shutdown that was in recent memory, which was in 2013. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that in comparison, the sides were completely switched. In 2013, Republicans were pushing for the government to shut down. They were thinking it was a good thing for it to shut down. And they were actually using rhetoric like this is a government like slim down or like they were saying something that basically was trying to minimize the fact that we were shutting our government down and people were not going to be getting paid for work that they were supposed to be doing. So the fact that now Republicans are saying, how dare you shut down this government and you're playing with the lives of people and military families, it all just feels very fake because we know we know that both sides use shutdowns as a form of political brinksmanship. We know that they threaten to take away people's jobs in order to get policy passed. So it just shows how dysfunctional our government is, especially given the fact that now we have new DACA legislation being proposed via Twitter, (laughs) via Trump, that is actually kind of Oh, I thought you stopped following. Look, I can find out from CNN. It's in the news. All right. (laughs) Anderson Cooper can tell me. Yeah, so this new DACA is clearly just as dysfunctional as this arguing over the government shutdown. And reports say that the administration is willing to allow 1.8 million unauthorized immigrants who came to the country as children, so who are currently in the DACA program. And this includes the 690,000 beneficiaries of the current DACA, as well as other who would have been eligible but didn't apply. And they're asking for this in exchange for $25 billion to fund this U.S.-Mexico border wall. So basically they're saying, okay, well, we'll let these ones in, but you have to let us keep these ones out. So they're once again bargaining with chips that aren't theirs. And it's talking about some core issues that have already been expressed by the Trump administration with regards to their initiatives for immigration. So trying to prevent the diversity lottery, which allows us to bring in immigrants from various countries that otherwise likely wouldn't be able to get in, Mm -hmm. creating a quote-unquote merit-based system, which I have a ton of feelings on. Also trying to prevent what they call chain migration, which I think is an extremely problematic term to discuss family immigration where folks can bring in their parents, can bring in their children and extended family to help them build a new life for their entire community in America. So, I I mean, I don't know how you feel about the idea of this merit-based I mean, meritocracy is a lie, just generally. Especially they're saying, okay, because first of all, who's determining the status or who's determining this threshold for which people are deemed skilled and unskilled laborers. Well, what they're saying is they want people who are going to come in with degrees, who are going to be professional. But the thing is, normally, nine times out of ten, when people from different countries come with their degrees, they count them as nothing here. And this has happened several times. I've seen this happen to friends of mine who have degrees, for example, law degrees in other countries, and then come over here, and they're basically invalid, and they're having to work, again, in the working class. Oh, exactly. I mean, all of this is extremely true. why, Why a degree from their country, if it's discounted in American politics as is right now, what does it mean? What is How how fruitful is that? Well, I, I think especially right after Trump made those comments about African countries and countries in the Caribbean, people did the data, they crunched the numbers and found out that 
oftentimes immigrants are the ones that are bringing in way more education, way more you know knowledge to our industries. But the issue is that in coming to a new country, you have to sacrifice a lot of the wealth and a lot of the income you've been able to develop in your home country. It's exactly. really hard it to relocate. It doesn't translate well. You're translating right. capital, education, degrees and such that are not necessarily accepted here because of not only our culture of unacceptance, but now the head of the political game here is making it a thing not to accept them. And people have been saying since Trump made that comment that when he says merit, he really just means white folks. Because when you talk about why aren't exactly. we bringing more folks from Norway, exactly. there's exactly. no evidence that Norwegian folks are more educated than any other you know, group. So making that statement still was very polarizing. It's just extremely problematic to think of the notion that Norwegians have more education than anyone else when there's no data to show that. They're just white folks. <laughs> exactly. They're just white. And once again, this adds to Trump's narrative that white people are more meritorious. One thing that really bothered me too, even on the left, because a lot of people have been going on the news to defend undocumented immigrants, but they're using this argument that is actually extremely problematic by saying, well, if you only want people who have merit coming into this country, then who's going to pick your vegetables? And who's going to wash your toilets? And who's going to clean your bathrooms? Like, I, I remember, I don't know if you remember Kelly Osborne making a comment like that a couple years back on maybe The View or some other talk show. Ew, we're talking no. about undocumented immigrants. But the, the notion is that undocumented immigrants are only taking jobs that the average American is not willing to do. And I mean, mm -hmm. of course, that is the case for, for some undocumented immigrants who are here because they don't have other opportunities to go into more meaningful work. They have to do jobs that are going to pay under the table, that are going to pay in cash, that exactly. are going to allow them to live undercover in ways that they are forced to do. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that there aren't undocumented immigrants here. Many of, of the dreamers, for example, who are in college, who are getting bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, PhDs, JDs, right? The notion that undocumented immigrants are only coming here to do menial labor and to steal resources from quote-unquote hardworking Americans, which is a lie itself, is extremely problematic. Like, we're, we're making your cures for cancer. We're out here building these new infrastructures and new technologies that you then take and exploit. So the, the notion of merit doesn't mean that only white folks are going to come in. It just means they're going to bring in people of color from overseas and then take all of their work and their labor regardless of where it is along the spectrum, and then capitalize on it. So I guess we're going to wait until February 8th, the last day of the temporary extension, to figure out what's going on with DACA? Yeah, just stay tuned. I'm sure it'll be back in the news because Trump's going to say something. Wild. I mean, he's already been saying stuff. <laughs> Are you sure he's going to say more via Twitter? All right, let's get into this issue with Larry Nasser, who was a former doctor for the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team, for the women's team, and just recently got sentenced to over 175 years in prison as a result of both federal and state charges of child pornography and sexual assault to many of the women who he worked with both in the U.S. gymnastics team and as a doctor at Michigan State University. Just pathetic. I, I, it's, Just it's wild. Pathetic. In the words of Judge Rosemarie Aquilina, mm. she told him, I have just signed your death warrant. Because this is ridiculous. 
after more than 150 women and girls said in court he sexually abused them. He's finally getting the justice he deserves. I think that it's disgusting. But my greatest problem with this Larry Nassar is how complicit everyone has been in the past two decades. Because right. he's been doing this. Just it's just it's similar to the Harvey Weinstein thing. He's been doing this for. 20 years plus. 20. Exactly. Right. Women have been coming forward. This is not the first time. Um, several women went to the Michigan State University president, who, thank God, just stepped down. And their complaints were completely disregarded and seen as unfounded. At One woman was even told that she didn't know the difference between a medical procedure and being molested. Okay, so this is the kind of stuff that's going on. And once again, everyone's making a big buzz over the fact that this guy's finally getting the justice he deserves. But, I mean, we still need to talk about the actors in this who were complicit in the sexual abuse. And there were several. And I think that I can, and it's hard to even say because you don't want to misdirect the, you don't want to misdirect the anger because he was the primary issue. But I I think that when we start looking at sexual abuse cases of these young girls who have been speaking out to people, we need to look at the people that they spoke out to. So at this point, parents, uh, faculty, the president of Michigan State, who once again, thank God, stepped down, need to be at the forefront of this conversation if anything is going to be effective in the future for sexual harassment reform. Yeah, I definitely think that the issue oftentimes has to do with those bystanders who either aren't equipped with the tools to identify sexual assault and or don't know how to speak about it when they do witness it. I, I was able to watch a little bit of the closing statements and of the, the judge's uh, decision and both talk about the fact that there were parents in the room with Dr. Nasser and, well, I won't even call him a doctor, but with Larry Nasser and exactly. these girls, and some, including some women, where the parents were completely unaware that anything was happening right in front of their eyes. So it, it just goes to show, and, and this is something I think we can bring into the larger conversation about sexual harassment, sexual assault, the Me Too movement, you know, as, as you mentioned, Brie. It, it's hard for us to identify these issues, but we need to be trained and equipped with those tools. We need mm-hmm. to learn what it actually is when someone is sexually harassed exactly. or sexually assaulted. And this doesn't shift the conversation in a way that diverts blame. So we're not saying, okay, these parents should have done this if they know that this ex-doctor was capable of this. We don't right. want to say that. We don't ever we don't ever want to, for example, say, oh, women need to dress differently or do X, Y, and Z if they know that men are allegedly predisposed to this type of behavior, as Angela Rye did say on her podcast. Hashtag living my truth. Very incorrect. A whole different conversation. But, you know, we do want to say that we do. We say this to say that those who did come forth with their testimonies to people who did not listen to them. That's where the issue occurs. It doesn't occur for people who allegedly should have stepped in or in, intercepted this behavior because, you know, if the parents were in the room and many times the girls at the time, they didn't even realize what was happening. Right. It seemed to it's it's OK. It went over everyone's head. But how do we prevent this in the future when victims do come forth instead of the normal thing that we do in America? You know, like the slut shaming and the, the victimizing the victim and whatnot. How do we start? 
creating a culture that thinks it's impactful to listen to the testimonies as opposed to wave them off and then 20 years later we wait till over 150 women have been assaulted and then come forth and give someone oh, a 175 years in jail you, this is what we're you already lived two decades as a doctor molesting everyone that you could molest and now we're just going to throw you in jail and, listen and believe yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. and make a case out of you you're not making a case out of someone who was allowed to persist for 20 years plus doing this to women damaging over 150 women and then giving a short and a very unacceptable apology at the end of your trial which barely was an apology you know? right, right. one of the big things that kind of caught the airwaves was the fact that Larry Nasser wrote a letter asking to be excused from the victim impact statements, which are read in part to assist in the sentencing process. So over 150 people came to the stand to speak about this issue, to speak about the impact that Larry Nasser had on them, whether they were actually sexually assaulted or the parents or family members of someone who was assaulted. People talked about depression, anxiety, lifelong physical and mental issues that they will have to live with as a result of being, quote unquote, treated by Larry Nasser. So it, it, I, I think, of course, it, the idea is that we need to start listening and believing people. Exactly. Because, listening and believing these women to change the culture. Because if people started talking about this back in the 90s, can you imagine exactly. how long he's been able to continue doing this without anyone speaking to it? Of course, keeping in mind that he has oftentimes tried to discredit these women as well. Early on in the process, he was mm-hmm. saying that he was just giving medical procedures. He was just treating people. His, his letter to the court yeah. to be excused from the victim testimonies, that was an, a way to try to discredit the women, too. In the letter, he said, I did right. Everything that I've done was right. The media has convinced them that I'm wrong and bad. And that's why they're feeling that I broke their trust. And then he goes and says that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Like, what are these what women? Scorn- yeah, what exactly? Like, what kind of gaslighting is that? And but again, we look at a lot of these high-profile sex abuse cases. Look at Bill Cosby's happened. When did the evidence come out? Many, many years later. But these women were complaining from the beginning. These women were saying, "Okay, this man has been drugging and raping me," but no one's listening. No one listened when the original reports came out for the Harvey Weinstein victims. And now Larry Nassar, too. No one's listening. And so in order to what and the way that I think that we're going to beat sexual harassment is to listen to the victims when they speak, as opposed to when a high profile person comes forth and then hundreds of girls come forth. Does it take a hundred stories to convince America that one story is the truth? Right. That's exactly what I was thinking is like it's a shame for us to say that. You know, if we're asking the question, how many women does it take for us to believe in exactly. a sexual assault uh, accusation? I guess it's between one and 150. Yeah, one point. and 150. Like, what, like, <laughs> exactly. What, what are we doing? Exactly. Because when I see these stories, it's like, okay, well, here goes the testimony of 150 women, or this is even 30 or 40 women. These are their stories. And a lot of these high profile news media platforms have been doing that. They've been gathering victims and saying, okay, tell your story here. And they kind of put it together in a book. Mm-hmm. And they're and like, okay, well, why did we even get to 20 or 30? Because I'm sure by like five or ten, like these women were coming forth. And, and these are children, too. These were children at the time right. that they're being treated. And these were children at the time that they were even once again complaining it to the Harvey Weinstein. They were meeting him. Even Roy Moore, the ex-Republican candidate, his victims were children at the time, several of them coming forth. But it took 10 or 12 girls to come forward for America to think, oh, hmm, he might have done something unacceptable. Well, I'll send a prayer out for Larry Nasser for some 
for some peace in, in prison because I don't know what happens behind those gates. You know, right now the issue is that he's going to be serving 60 years as a result of the federal charge for child pornography. And then the sentence that was imposed by Judge Aquilina is on top of that. So it honestly may be that he doesn't even serve anything out of the state yeah. sentence because, I mean, the guy's already kind of old. So it isn't expected that he's going to be able to survive the entire sentence at all, let alone be put on parole to be able to leave and see the light of day that is unobscured by chain link fences. So. You know, shout out to all of the women who were able to come forward, who found the strength to write, to be present in the courtroom, to speak in the victim impact statements, because that is the representation that we actually need to be able to bring this conversation forward and to continue it with all the momentum we've seen. That's very impactful. time for the petty. I am so ready for the petty. I'm prepared. Ready for the petty. Let's start with our first story, which is the Miss Amara La Negra. Ooh, a... <laughs> I like that. Do I'm happy again. I could get that R. Get <laughs> that did, R in did there. A really good. I don't. Is it? It's only one R though. I don't think that you roll one R. But that wasn't a roll. That was more. Like oh. A, oh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, on the record, I can't actually roll eyes. Um, but anyway, so... I thought uh, it sounded great. Thank you. I appreciate okay. it. So we have Amara La Negra, who is the Dominican 27-year-old singer, songwriter. She's just entering the American market, having blown up in the Dominican and Latinx market. She did a lot of reggaeton. She's done some Ooh. Brazilian funk. Brazilian funk, um, for sure. So, like, really amazing, dark skin. Afro-Latino woman, right? Mm-hmm. Afro, 4 curls poppin', very versatile. The issue started on Love & Hip Hop Miami. Now, I don't know if many of you watch Love & Hip Hop. I don't. But No, I don't. I, absolutely but, not. But Love & Hip Hop Miami, you know, is oftentimes a platform for a lot of people to go and get uh, publicity, especially if you are a performer. So this all started with a segment on Love & Hip Hop where Amara was meeting with a, I guess, a producer named Young Hollywood. No one knows who he is, but literally, quite literally, who, that, I think that needs its own segment. Like, who is Young it's Hollywood? That you call yourself Young Hollywood. Yeah, because... literally. Ugh. Anyway, so there's a conversation between Amara and Young Hollywood where this producer is telling her that she needs to change her look in order to be more acceptable and palatable to the American audience. So he's talking about how she needs to look more like Beyonce and less like Macy Gray. I, and in oh, part, saying yeah. I guess don't have dark skin, don't have. Forcey popping curls. Like, I don't know what what the implication of it was, but we've already talked about cultural modulation in the previous episode. So, I mean, you you know how we feel about these types of concerns about changing the way that you look to feel like you are more legible, to feel like you are more legitimate in these spaces. Mm -hmm. So, that happened. Twitter and, and the internet went off. And then Amara gained a little bit of a platform as a result of this and then went on to The Breakfast Club with Charlemagne the God to have a conversation about this further. Okay. And that went downhill. So. But why? Okay, but I'm not I'm not reverting like the where the conversation should be, but like why have a serious conversation about serious stuff on the Breakfast Club? Like why did she did she choose she, she chose to go on there? She's just like invited on there or something. Mm. If I know that I'm going to be talking about something like that's serious, I'm not going to go and talk with the Breakfast Club. I'm sorry. They're probably trying to get that petty politics, you know, balance between the petty and the political. You know, I'm not saying that. I'm like saying if I know I wouldn't be and I like went on the breakfast club and I talked about something serious. But I was I was hesitant if if that helps. I I definitely was. And so 
of course, during her Breakfast Club interview, her comments and concerns about being an Afro-Latina, especially the intersection of the two in mainstream, how hard it is for her to be put on the forefront of a lot of projects that she thinks she would be put on the forefront of. Would she be a lighter skinned and I suppose more, more subject to the white standard of beauty? She's talking about these very real, very prevalent concerns, and Charlemagne and DJ Envy are acting completely dumbfounded, as though they don't understand what Afro-Latino is. At one point, Charlemagne looks at her and asks her if what she's talking about, which is colorism in Hollywood, is if it's all in her head. And then he goes on to say that he doesn't even think that colorism exists in Hollywood anymore. Well, I have a black man don't see this. <laughs> How could you be dealing with this? I'm exactly. Confused. Mind you, last week when Jermaine Dupree went on The Breakfast Club, he completely said the same thing. He said that you know, he said the same thing. He didn't use the term colorism, but he said lighter models are more accepted in pop culture than black women or dark skinned models. And then guess what? DJ and B and Charlamagne said, yeah, right. So. And I mean, then- I'm not, I can't say I'm that surprised that black men are going to be like trashing black women, Afro Latinx women. It's been well documented that. Black men do not stand for black women when it comes to these types of issues, especially not knowing the intricacies of the market, as Amara was trying to explain in the interview. She's saying, I'm coming from a Latinx market. I'm coming from a a market that does see light-skinned people as more attractive, as more beautiful, as more successful, as more supreme. I know, and they're just acting like they just couldn't digest the fact that this market would be any different than just the black market in general. But I think that even if it was the black market, that we're talking about, if we're talking about colorism and critiquing it honestly, then it's the same thing. So I don't understand. You don't understand it from an Afro-Latinx standpoint. That's understandable. But how do you not understand it in the black market when that's the conversation of the day? Like everyone knows that. I think they don't recognize the analog. The fact that in the Latinx diaspora, there isn't per se, quote unquote, racism, Mm -hmm. but there is white supremacy because white supremacy infects everything, right? Everything. And so... Colorism is kind of a, a a different derivative of the same types of issues, whereas the skin color that you have, maybe not your quote-unquote race, but your skin color plays a lot of roles in terms of your social mobility and where you stand within the larger social community. So the fact that they couldn't at least understand that bit just kind of goes to show that, I mean— they aren't putting in the work that they need well, to yeah, do. Well, yeah, exactly. That's what it them. just comes that's just what it comes down to when they have the resources at hand to to learn about these things, especially before meeting with her because they were asking her a lot of questions that were pretty salient. Like you could just kind of go in, on google.com. They didn't do that. So it was I don't know if <laughs> <laughs> they could have No, they could have on Google. Them? Yeah, literally refused. quick search engine, but I mean to not be prepared and to go into an interview and then to question. And I think that this is just a reflection of the power structures put in place in society to go against what black women say in general. Like, okay, we're coming to you and say, oh, we're being oppressed. And then you stand there and say, oh, it's not, it's all in your head. (laughs) It's like, no, these are very real things. But, you know, just shows that either they don't care or they made the conscious decision to be ignorant to something that not only pervades the Afro-Latino society, but also the black society at large. I think this becomes even more important seeing as Charlemagne and DJ Envy tried to pit women against each other by bringing in Cardi B. So at one point they say, all right, so Cardi B, she's popping right now. 
Is she dealing with these issues? How come she's able to be popping? And it's like, you don't you get You literally, and it. they chose like a light-skinned candidate right. to make that comparison. Like the point was so missed on Yeah, them. like it would be different if they had chose a darker-skinned woman. So, okay, well, she's popping. Like, And how would you compare that? You couldn't find any. Yeah, and they couldn't. Exactly. <laughs> like they're... Exactly, they couldn't find any. And, and then, of course, Cardi B's sister comes and responds to that. And and I, I don't even, her name is Hayden C, but best known as and most relevantly known as Cardi B's sister. <laughs> She comes at Amara La Negra and she's like, oh, you know, colorism is an issue. And my sister's been talking about it, but I mean, we don't benefit from it. Mm. Like, okay, girl, problem, problem, problem. That's <laughs> I don't even know where to start. I can't even read her today. Like, first of all, what's wrong with you? If it, colorism is an issue in society at large and it's literally the framework of mainstream media, then you don't think that you being at the forefront. Well, not even you, your sister being the forefront of current mainstream media because she's have hit after. I mean, Cardi B's amazing. Like, I'm a Cardi B fan. But let's get real. Colorism played the smallest part in that. Like, I'm not understanding. It's just like a white person sitting in front of me. Oh, you know, uh, prejudice and racism is real, but, like, I don't benefit from it. Okay. Unpack that invisible knapsack. Moving on right along. (laughs) 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 Moving right along. Because that's really just it. The fact that... How did y'all not know? Like, how can you not... We need more intersectional projects. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, exactly. More in intersectional projects. And I and I don't think that they just don't know. I think that I don't. I can't even say if they were playing. Do- like I just don't know what to call it. Like seeing the interview, just asking questions. Like, are you just? Do you want her to explain more? Or do you just want to know more of her perspective on it? Or you just really just didn't do any research. Like you just don't know anything about like slave trades and how Africans or Black people in general ended up in predominantly Latin countries. Like I'm not. I don't understand. They don't know. They, yeah. But so. what, what do you think about the fact that Love and Hip Hop allowed for this like storyline in the first place? Yeah. Like, what did uh, that, I thought it was interesting that Love and Hip Hop was talking about it in the first place. You know. Do you think that Love and Hip Hop did it intentionally to create meaningful dialogue around the Latin the Latin industry colorism issue, or do you think that they just did it for drama? I mean, Amara probably came up with it. Now that you I think, think so? about it, like she. Because in the interview with with yeah. with Charlamagne, she says like this is a real issue, and and even though a lot of love and hip hop and reality shows have scripted storylines, this was a real one. Yeah, she's so like we she didn't even it. have to really act. Right, like, like maybe she brought it up, but I I don't like I don't know how you feel about the fact that that is even a storyline being brought up on a scripted show. Like, are we gonna start seeing like? I don't know. We're going to start seeing basketball wives talking charged, about. Yeah. <laughs> More politically charged dialogue on reality television. I don't know. I mean, it. I'm very unsettled when it comes to reality television. And this is not me judging. It's just that I think that the picture that it paints of black communities and is inaccurate to the society at large. And so I don't really want to even get into that conversation. Like, why is Love and Hip Hop doing that? I don't know. Why do they do anything like Like, they let people fight on camera and stuff, and then they, like, act like, okay, this is all, like, this is what we do. And right. It, like, this it, isn't it redeeming. To, exactly. It kind of gets back to, like, the cultural modulation conversations. Like, okay, yeah. Fair. Listen to fair. listen to last week's, guys. <laughs> no, fair, fair. I mean, like, you, you really have had a bunch of black black folks fighting on TV. Yeah, so you're fighting right, on TV. You're not, you're not doing the best for representation exactly. of black folks, perhaps. Exactly, perhaps. Exactly. I feel like if Love and Hip Hop was majority white, maybe we can talk about it a bit differently. They weren't, what is it, the dominant group? No, oh, white folks have all their Oppressive shows. othering, exactly. Wilding out, too. So. Uh, it, but no, I don't think that it's it, it's <laughs> painted the same. Way. The same. Sure, exactly, sure, sure, as sure. we are in Love and Hip Hop. I mean, what do we have, like Peter Gunn, like having two girlfriends like in the same apartment building, and everyone's like, oh my God, he's so playa. Like, shut up, that's mm. gross. Ew. And I'm, I'm just not a part of that culture. 
not a part of the reality television culture. I'm sorry. Well, shout out to Amada. Like, keep keep Thank popping. You. I'm excited pushing, to look at some new music, to look at too. some like collaborations. Maybe she and Cardi B will come through. Yeah, ooh, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, she gets the award for the day. Uh, donkey of the day goes to Cardi B's sister and to Charlamagne sure. and, and DJ MB. And not be sued on exactly, copyright. Exactly. All right, let's talk about Oprah 2020, because truly I'm sick and tired of talking about it, but I'll say it one more time for the record. Okay? I actually haven't even been talking about it. Every time I hear conversations, I, can, I just, just ignore it. Like, this is not something that I'm even leave, going to consider. Leave Oprah alone. Leave Oprah and black women alone, but also leave American politics right. Thank you. Thank you. So earlier this year, Oprah won the Cecil B. DeMille Award at the Golden Globes and gave a really amazing speech about the Me Too movement, about the rights of women to stand up and speak their their truth, to speak about the oppression they've dealt with, and also to lead countries and to run the world in many great ways. Mm-hmm. And, and having seen Oprah do this, as she always does, you know, bringing tears to people's eyes, people then began to speculate, oh, okay, so I guess this is the campaign speech for Oprah 2020. And so over the people, past couple of weeks, we've been seeing all of yeah, that. You know? I don't think it's like people speculating about it being a campaign speech. I think people are pushing it as a, an agenda. What, like, uh, or campaigning for her. Well, it's both, because they're trying to speak their emotions into her. They're trying to say, this is evidence that we were right all along that she wants to run. <laughs> you know what I mean? And even like that Gail, she's competent. Gail, her bestie, was on Good Morning America, like talking to you like mm, you know she said maybe and she, she no, might she might no. you know like <laughs> I feel like people were fueling the flames a lot and it initially really annoyed me and I, I wrote about this on my Facebook page and some people may have seen it but I was basically saying you know it annoyed me too by the way it, it, it is very appropriate of the United States to look for a black woman to clean up the mess that they have made and we saw this when Michelle Obama came out Hello. and when they go high we go low that? that became the new presidential slogan and everyone's like oh it's always okay. <laughs> exactly Obama for 2016 but now look we have Oprah coming forth doing the same thing and now everyone's pushing forth with another black woman to fix the problems that a black woman did not create Especially one that a white man created. Exactly, to be specific. But, you know, that's not even my issue with Oprah running for president. My issue is the fact that America has normalized looking at entertainers. Mm. And let's get this right. Oprah Mm. is an entertainer. Absolutely. Looking at entertainers to lead the free world. And I think this completely shifts away from the normal democratic process in ways that I think that are fundamentally broken within both the Democrat and the Republican parties. So, no, I'm not a supporter of people pushing for people with no political or legal experience in general to lead the free world because that's how we got Donald Trump. Everyone is thinking that, okay, this is a populist candidate. We're having a populist explosion. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's someone who kind of reverts the corporations, the man, the establishment, and kind of thinks more deeply into what the people want and runs the government accordingly. But we bring people who are actually a part of that establishment and we guide under the guise that they are a populist candidate. Oprah is a part of the establishment. And I think that she was very close with Donald Trump before he went into politics. I don't know their relationship now. And I know that she was very close with Harvey Weinstein when it was like a known thing in Hollywood that he was molesting people. It just hadn't been, I suppose, adjudicated. And now 
look, everyone wants her to be president, and no one even knows her politics. I, I think I remember hearing somewhere where Trump had asked her about being on his team or whatever, and she said, I'm with her. So, like, I, I don't doubt that she's generally... Well, she does have generally liberal... Right, 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 she's, right. Well, yeah, she's spoken out on them. But what does that mean? Well, are they even liberal? Are they neoliberal? Like, what... I mean... Probably both, right? Exactly. Like, and, and, and also, I would say, you know, Oprah is an entertainer, absolutely. She had a journalism background, so that might tilt things a little bit differently. Like, I don't think she's directly comparable to, to Donald Trump. Like, I don't even think necessarily that we need another person to come into office that has political and or legal experience. Oh, I'm not necessarily, my God. What? Like, like, <laughs> my thing about it is I don't necessarily think those are keys to success. I don't think that. Like, uh, I don't think you need to so have. So you're those saying things. like the poli- legal and political experiences are not prerequisites to success. I don't. I don't think I they're don't prerequisites think so. to success, but I think that they are prerequisites to being at the forefront of the political system. Like, and the, for example, we see what happens when we bring someone in who has no legal experience or even simple experience with federalism and separation of powers like we see what happens when a president comes in aka donald trump and starts going off in the courts saying that certain acts implemented by the executive branch which are totally unconstitutional are unconstitutional and that and that's why i think donald trump has messed it up for everyone else that could have run for president that wasn't a lawyer or a politician in the past like i see your point like i totally understand that Historically, we've had people who have political experience or legal experience, and that has been important because they can at least speak the language, right? It's but, not even about speaking the language. It's abiding by it, abiding but, by the law. And that's what I'm saying. I don't think you have to be a politician or a lawyer to abide by the law. To know especially, them so distinctly. Not necessarily, especially because Trump, Trump is surviving now because he has advisors there with him, right? Yes. All presidents have advisors because they don't know everything. Oftentimes they don't know that much, right? So I don't think that it's necessarily the fact that he isn't a... Because I think Trump could be a lawyer and a politician and still be terrible. I I mean, mean? and we've seen that in previous presidencies. Exactly. But I'm not... What I'm saying, I'm not saying, okay, you need to be a lawyer to know the law. Because that that can be turned on its face. There are some lawyers who don't know the law, etc. I'm saying in order to be the president of the United States, you need some type of background that shows that you're at least understanding of what the laws are like i don't understand right. like to I have think, I, and think I think in law school we're adequately i law school does not train you i think to be a lawyer that's legal research and writing that's one course that we take right. okay great one course lrw is the only thing that's been relevant to my summer associate experiences but i think the legal framework the classroom framework trains you to be a politician or at least to know about sure. the structures of the government in ways that are important. I think it's self-fulfilling. It's very self-fulfilling. You know what, you know what I mean? So it's like, I don't think that Oprah couldn't go and get a legal research and writing course and be totally competent in our political system. I think she could learn those things. And I think she's supported movements in the past that show that she at least has a social justice mindset. Like she understands that there are social problems that need to be dealt with. So like, again, but that's not even my issue. Like my, what I'm saying is I think Oprah is qualified to be a president. What I'm saying is her being president is actually really problematic because it will put a black woman's face to a lot of the problematic aspects of American empire. So Built by white people. That's understandable. I'm saying, and I completely agree with your point, that black people shouldn't, I mean, black women particularly shouldn't have to fix this problem we didn't get the world into. But also, I think that she's not qualified to be the president mm-hmm. of the United States. Like I, I remember reading that. some articles by like Ta-Nehisi Coates and a bunch of other folks about Obama. Um, even Cornel Rust wrote something about 
about it, actually, that was in response to Tana Hasi Coates, saying that Obama was the representative of a neoliberal empire and was basically a figurehead and a legitimizing force for a lot of American projects that are extremely detrimental to people of color in oppressed communities, bombing places in the Middle East, um, deportations of undocumented folks. And so yeah, even Ob- his even that's going national, even his domestic agenda and talking about self-responsibility and stuff. It just doesn't take away from the fact that Obama was a neoliberal candidate. Right. And, and I think that it shows that if we had Oprah running all of this, it would just be the same old, same old. But Again, we would have the black community in support, potentially without rationale, just because sometimes we do support black folks for Mm -hmm. the sake of them being black, which is totally fine. But having her at the forefront running this country, not only would it be extremely stressful and frustrating for her sake, like you have an enchanted forest. Like, why are you like, why why would you want to leave your farm and your branded soups? Yep. To go and run a country that its policies have been trash and the way that it treats people has been trash. I mean, like I said, I think Oprah could bring us out of that dungeon. I think she could bring us back into a state of prosperity in coordination with her advisors. But a lot of the blowback we would get from this would be extremely detrimental and and often involve racism. It's going to be people talking about her as a black person, as a black woman, whether she's capable or qualified. The same stuff that we saw for Hillary Clinton, but with the added component of being black. So the massage noir would be brought into it in many ways that even Hillary Clinton wasn't dealing with as a candidate. So neither of us are here for the Oprah 2020 train. Uh, y'all leave her alone. Leave she, her alone. She just came out with another post saying she doesn't have the DNA to run for president, which I... I saw that too, Which I way. feel like was a subtweet saying that only white people... Like, have the, the energy to run for... Th- like, I don't know what she was trying to say by DNA, but it also made me think about uh, <laughs> Kendrick Lamar's DNA. Like, <laughs> But anyway, uh, you know, le- let her chill. Let her be Oprah and be popping and be amazing and not have to save none of y'all. Like, she doesn't have to expend any of her energy to bring us out of the rut that we're in because h- half of, of white women and the majority of white men voted for Donald Trump, you know? Like, exactly. All right, y'all, this has been another episode of Petty Politics. Thank bringing you so much you for listening. Petty, bringing you the politics. Got real raw today, I think. I, I think it was, it was a good day back, you know. I'm excited for us to continue working out our schedule to be able to give you more consistent content, folks. Keep looking out for our Life in the Law series and also for our Law School Admissions 101 series. We've actually been getting a lot of emails from folks oh, yeah, we asking have. to look at personal statements and diversity statements. So we appreciate the support and we try to give as much feedback as we can. Um, you know, let us know. Send us an email if you want us to look at your information. We might even feature a question that you have on the show. In the Life in the Law segment. Yes, we will. Well, we might. <laughs> So with any questions, any and all questions and feedback and comments, and mind you, we love reading them, so keep sending them, please email us at harvardbolsapettypolitics, that's such a long name, at gmail.com. So Harvard, H-A-R-V-A-R-D, Bolsa, B-L-S-A, Petty Politics, as spelled on the podcast, at gmail.com. Alrighty, y'all stay tuned. We have a bunch of really cool projects that we're working on behind the scenes and we're excited to share them with you. We really want to make sure that we can provide you with as much 
value as possible in a podcast. So please do like, comment, and subscribe. We see how many of you download each episode, so we know how many of y'all haven't liked or commented or, or subscribed. subscribed. So I need y'all to like, comment, and subscribe so that we can, you know, I don't know, keep it popping over here. Keep it popping. All right, y'all. Take care. Peace. Peace.